Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm speaking with Thomas Barton about the medieval crown of Aragon, the role of ethno-religious minorities in society, and the larger means by which individuals and communities were able to construct and understand individual identities. But first, a little information about our guest. Thomas Barton earned his undergraduate degree in history and medieval studies at Princeton and an MA and PhD in medieval history at Yale. After graduating, he taught for a year at Oberlin College before relocating to the University of San Diego in 2007, where he is currently a professor of history. Dr. Barton's research concerns the relationship between different ethno-religious communities within Iberia and, and the Western Mediterranean, which includes North Africa, during the medieval period, especially between 1000 and 1400. He is a highly active archival historian, and he has won numerous fellowships to, to support his work, including full-year fellowships from the American Council of Learned Societies in 2010 and the National Endowment for the Humanities in 2019. To date, Dr. Barton has written three monographs, edited three collaborative volumes, and authored numerous peer-reviewed articles in top journals. In addition, he is currently working on three additional monographs, along with a popular history on conquest, colonization, empire building. In addition to this, I'm sure he's also working on numerous additional articles. So, Tom, welcome. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Breton, for the invitation. Um, I'm excited to, to be on this illustrious list of, of guests you've had over, on the podcast over the years. <laughs> well, thank you. It's really nice to have you here. All right. So I want to go ahead. I want to jump right into it. Um, so a lot of your research, a lot of your work focuses on the Crown of Aragon. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the initial formation about the Crown of Aragon. So kind of for our audience, what is it? Where is it? When did it come into being? And then also how it might compare to some of the other Christian kingdoms in Iberia. And also kind of as, as a part of this, I know Barcelona plays a, a central role in, in the history of the Crown of Aragon. If you could just talk a little bit about its role and kind of its, its yeah, the role it played in the initial formation. It's a very interesting place. I never, when I first came into the medieval studies, I never thought that I would be working on this area. It just sort of, it just got, got pulled in by advisors, the availability of art, art archives in this area. And and it's a, but it's a really, yeah, so it's a really fascinating history. You have this this area in, in Northeastern today, Spain, what is t Spain? And these are areas that are only conquered you know, briefly by the Muslims during the this, this initial wave of Islamic invasions um, in the seventh and eighth centuries, or resist conquest uh, because because the Carolingians are able to push back the Muslims when they're invading, and and then you have these these tiny principalities uh, or counties or you know various various entities that that temporarily fall under the control of the Carolingians, but then but then as the Carolingian Empire disintegrates, they they become independent. And then, and then just this whole, this whole back and forth with the the Muslim world territories to the south, uh, and over you know over time, the Christian these Christian these Christian um, entities are able to to grow themselves, and and they organize themselves in different ways over time. So the crown of Aragon emerges out of this context uh, because you have to the east you have this emergent area that we know today or becomes known in the Middle Ages as, as Catalonia. Um, based based on the just the proliferation of castles there, right? And and this and this area becomes progressively uh, falls progressively under the under the control of the Counts of Barcelona, uh, for a variety of reasons. The Counts of Barcelona are able to gain more resources and and sort of subjugate these other counts. And these are all you know former Carolingian counts, like former administrators within the Carolingian Empire. But the, after the Carolingian Empire disintegrates, they they're independent, and so they're fighting amongst each other. 
consecutive counts and counts and all sorts of uh, other other titles, but gradually over the 11th century in particular, the, the counts of Barcelona are, are able to subjugate these other, these, you know, former rivals and kind of take control. And part of what's in, what's helping them is that they're able to enrich themselves from interactions with the Muslims to the South by collecting tribute or plunder and so forth. Um, and then to the West, you have this, this, this area that becomes a kingdom. So, it's very strange. Like, why do some places, why, why are there counties? Why do they stay counties? And why do some places become kingdoms? It's just, at some point, some, it's kind of arbitrary. At some point, someone decides they're going to claim the title of king and they have some sort of rationale and it sticks. And so these, the, this was a, initially a county, kind of a proto-county of Aragon and then it, uh, to, the, to the West. And then it becomes gradually known as a kingdom. And they're participating in this involvement with, the Muslims to the south as well, but what what eventually happens as you get into the 12th century is that the kings of Aragon their their line dies out, and there's a but there's been a dynastic merger with with the counts of Barcelona, and so there's this merger between between Barcelona or AKA Catalonia and Aragon, and so these guys become known as count kings. Count kings, count, count of Barcelona, king of Aragon, right? And so the famous kings that we we think of, like the most, uh, probably the most famous one is Jaume the first or James the first, who conquers Valencia and the Balearic Islands, and you know all these all these really great famous stories about how you know how great a conqueror he was. He's a, he's technically still a count king, but not only does he have a, not only is he count of Barcelona, he's also he also has all these other titles. You know, he's count of this, count of that, Marquis of this, like, you know, and so it's a very complex assemblage of inheritances, right? And so if you think of like someone later, like Charles V or, you know, or Carlos I, right, of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Hasburg, you know, he's the same thing, right? I mean, a lot of students will say, well, how does he have all these things? It's, it's because, you know, these families assemble all of these different entitlements over many, many generations. And so this is the same thing that's happening here. You know, they have titles to this, titles to that, and these are these these entities are um, they're confederated through the 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 dynastic household. They're based in Barcelona, but but they're not. They're all different entities. So you have the principality. It's called the Principate of Catalonia. You have the Kingdom of Aragon. You have the Kingdom of Mallorca. The Kingdom of of Valencia. Right. So I mean, these are. These are all different entities, and so and so what we end up calling the Count of Aragon is actually it's an anachronism. It does they didn't use that word back in the Middle Ages, but we use it to refer to what we call it's it, historians call it a composite monarchy, or sometimes a confederated monarchy. And the idea is that you have these different entities that are all governed by the same family, but or dynast or whatever you want to call it. But they're, but they are. They all have different laws, different entitlements, different, you know, different privileges, different identities, different, in many cases, different languages. It makes uh, studying them a challenge because because you have to be attentive to all of the local diversities, you know, jurisdictional diversities, the, the legal histories of these areas, and, and so forth. I mean, it makes it, it's like a puzzle. It's it's fun. I I enjoy it, but. But it is it, there is a steep learning curve.
and that's not the, that's not unique to this to to uh i mean every every part of medieval europe uh is like that but in this in this case it's maybe arguably a little more complex just because there's so much regionality there's so much um it's more diverse i i would i would argue than than for instance than for the kingdom of france because there's a, a better ability to centralize in in a place like that uh, or in the kingdom of castile you could argue that there's there's more more of a success with centralization uh i think it's more of a battle uh a, a kind of a mixed uh a, a mixed situation with efforts to centralize through like roman law and so forth um within the crown of aragon and and that makes it actually a really fun that's something i've actually studied in a lot of my work is is the failed attempts to centralize and the failed attempts for the you know, the kings to assert these rights that other kings elsewhere in europe are, are asserting so um so like yeah, a lot of work deals with the, these complexities of of this confederated monarchy that um or composite monarchy that that isn't that well known you know you don't people people know about catalan language through barcelona like barcelona is such a famous city and everything i think a lot of people don't really understand like when they go to down uh to, they go to the old old part of the city of barcelona and they have a metro stop called jaume prime jaume or james the first they did they, they don't really understand how that fits in to the whole, overall history of spain i think there's an assumption that spain was just was always like you know one place that was under one kingdom that was under the rule of you know th these monarchs in in the center uh you know associated with with um castile so because the crown of aragon doesn't continue to exist as a separate entity throughout history you only get glimpses of it every now and then in the modern press like through like catalonia's effort to become independent and you know, or or you go to Andorra and you're sort of like, how come Andorra is independent? Like I don't like what they speak Catalan here, but why are why is Catalonia not independent? And how come there's a part of France that where people still speak Catalan a little bit, but not so much? If you go south of the Pyrenees, it's like the same language roughly, but it's part of Spain and right. So it's it's confusing, I think, uh, if if you don't really immerse yourself in the history. No, I, I think that that definitely that makes sense. I think most folks most folks don't, right? I think we kind of take for granted what what's here now, and then we don't actually kind of think about where things things come from. Um, so I, I want to move forward a little bit, right? So we kind of looked at the formation of the Crown of Aragon, or this kind of the, this Confederate monarchy that's in this, this space. I'm going to be more careful about saying the Crown of Aragon from here on out, but <laughs> yeah, we all say it. <laughs> we all use that. It's okay. fine. <laughs> Fair enough. So I'll, I'll keep using it then, just carefully. So I'm, I'm curious, kind of, as we move from this early period, from the 12th, 13th century, you mentioned John Premier, kind of looking at this initial conquest, which is in the 13th century. Um, I'm wondering if you just kind of contextualize a little bit where we are, kind of in the period that you mostly study. So kind of where we are as we get to late 14th century, early 15th century looking at kind of how we could kind of maybe contextualize this space, this place, um, with regard to a, a large Iberian context, a larger Mediterranean context, what are some things that maybe make it special, perhaps like this confederated monarchy that you discuss, and how is it interacting with the powers around it, right? Is it similar? Is it different? What? Yeah, so I mean, this is a very broad question, so I, I guess take it mm -hmm. the way that you want yeah. to take it, but just how, how does it kind of fit? How do, how do how can we contextualize it? So one of the things that, that you know, I've really fought against is there's this, this whole historiographical concept of the Re Reconquista, right, which which is really it's really important for 
it's been very central to the way that medieval uh, Spain has has been interpreted, and and also you know it it's very politicized because because I mean it it, it it's very much caught up in in Spain's kind of uh, political polarization or you know struck you know struggle over its identity uh, as it you know navigates it, you know the, its future right and so uh, and so this you know could be, because the idea of, like the Castile is the is the kind of nerve center of Spain today is kind of based on this on this myth of the Reconquista being kind of the attempt to recover what had been lost by the Visigoths when the Muslims invaded and that and that kind of prioritizes the, the Castilian their their political uh, interests or something um, and 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 sidelines the interests uh, the existences of um, of places like the crown of Aragon right so so there's it's a very it's very fraught but but if you go back into the Middle Ages, what I've really tried to do with my work is is kind of look at this more as a long, maybe in some ways interconnected, but oftentimes not really connected series of wars and alliances and dynastic struggles and diplomatic endeavors and 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 so forth. That I mean, you really shouldn't refer to it as like kind of one struggle, like the Reconquista or something like that. But you really do need to understand this interaction with the Islamic world and also with this competition between these Christian principalities in order to really conceptualize any any of the history that we're trying to study. I mean, it's a really like important kind of contextualizing theme. And so the crown of Aragon, you know, is fighting to conquer as much territory to the south within the peninsula, but then also it has this coastline along along the Mediterranean. And so it's also colonizing in, into the Mediterranean. So they're capturing islands. And I mean, they're going, you know, they're capturing, they can eventually capture Sicily and in Southern Italy. And I mean, going you know, deep, deep into, into the Mediterranean. Also, they're going northward, north of the Pyrenees, you know, in, until they're kind of stopped during the Albigensian Crusade. I mean, so it's a very complex history, but, but, you know, basically they're, they're trying to acquire as much territory as they can, competing with neighbors and you know other rivals, and this becomes this becomes a, a a really kind of interesting situation for them by the time you get to the the 14th century because they've they've at this point they've kind of thought like there's nowhere else to grow right I mean I mean you could go into North Africa but but um it's that's that's a that's very challenging and um. And so that you know they they continue to kind of uh, develop their interests into the Mediterranean, but it's but it's it's it becomes much more much more difficult to to expand territorially. And Castile on the to the to the west has has succeeded in capturing more territory. So it's much territorially much much larger. Doesn't have the mercantile revenue that the Crown of Aragon has, but it has a lot more people and has a lot more land, and um and just kind of is is has an advantage. And so when when the Crown of Aragon and Castile fight wars, it's it's you know it's they're these are very long, difficult wars that do a lot of damage. Um, the number of these wars hap- happen, you know. It, oh, I mean, there's it's fa- you know famous famous uh, engagements between the, the it's called the War of the Two Pedros in the uh, mid 1300s, and you know, and these these all influence the social the social history of these of these kingdoms. This has kind of framed my work as I've worked on the 11th and 12th centuries and then into the 13th century and now increasingly in the 14th and 15th centuries. You're seeing the, the kind of maturation of these of these political entities 
as they've continued to engage with the Islamic world and also with each other. And, you know, they become bureaucratically becoming more sophisticated, more, there's more, there's more sources, there's more, it's really, you know, it's really complex negotiation between centralizing and ingrained autonomies and entitlements and privileges and like localisms. But I mean, there are these constant things that uh, realities that we have to take into consideration, like the engage the, the presence of the Islamic world. I mean, I've always tried to uh, to study this this history from both from both angles. You know, not not exclusively looking at it through Christian sources, but also trying to take into consideration how the Arabs who are either living under Christian rule, they're either partnering with these Christian principalities or they're opposing them. How these these neighbors are influenced the history and engaging with it and 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 so it's 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 impossible i think it's really impossible to do justice to this history if you if you aren't um constantly constantly kind of questioning the the kind of frame the way you frame these these studies and um and and, and tr- you know trying to, c- to capture all these different complicating aspects of of these uh you know the the, the kind of political universe that that was in was emotion in this in these pre-modern centuries so yeah so i don't know if i really if i answered <laughs> your question <laughs> i i think so yes i mean we, we get this sense right I'm, and i was struck as well i mean we get the sense of what the crown Aragon was in this period and I, I was struck by this idea this kind of picture you paint of this this conquest right that's taking place right so first in places like valencia then in the, in the mediterranean um i mean they, they even conquer places like sicily as well right i mean yeah in, Yes. So we see this kind of expansion into all these places that are, are different, right? Particularly taking over parts of this, what had been parts of the Muslim world. So this this actually leads to, to my next question, right? So as we see this, we, we have this, this polity that's taking over the space that's incorporating all these people who are who are different, right? So that we have these large minorities, right? We have these large ethno-religious minorities in these territories, particularly places that used to be Muslim kingdoms, right? Places like Valencia, for instance. So I was I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what was the role of some of these ethno-religious minorities in the Crown of Aragon during this period, and in particular, kind of looking at what their role was in society, and also what are some ways that they might have kind of constructed or performed this identity that they had within society as well, right? So I'm I'm thinking here particularly of some of these kind of markers of status, these markers of identities, things like clothing, things like food, kind of what people eat. Um, mm-hmm. So really, really broad question, but I, I guess kind of at yeah. the the root of it, just kind of what what kind of role do these people have? What kind of status do these people have in Aragonese, to, to use a shorthand, um, society during during this period? So this is, uh, yeah, it's a big aspect of my work, and it's a big aspect of it's a big part of just of just the field in general, especially especially uh, amongst uh, Anglo American scholars, uh, subaltern, I don't know, uh, in in the kind of the press history, you know, history of. Um, not of minority groups, the origins of race, racial identity, the origins of uh, racism, uh, institutional, like, you know, structural discrimination through societal institutions and and, and stuff like this, right? For whatever reason, this has become a huge focus amongst Anglo-American scholars, much more than than amongst uh, Spanish scholars. I mean, there's a, there are, there are people who who study this in Europe, um, you know, but I would I would say it's it's like kind of a it's a it's a small subset of of what they are interested in. Whereas in America uh, and and also in the UK, 
it's it's really you know pretty dominant it's it's like the vast majority of studies that are being done are are on the jews and muslims who were uh who are either resident in they're either resident in these kingdoms these principalities or looking at the the muslim ruled lands and 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 studying these these groups i mean either you know christian minorities or 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 jewish minorities or or muslims who went in between these places like kind of migrating there's just a lot of interest in that right so especially there's this huge resurgence now in in studying the uh, al-andalus right which is you know the name for the the kind of general name for the the muslim ruled lands in the in the peninsula and also the maghreb you know north africa there's there's a lot of you know really important new scholarship kind of that's pushing the limits of you know, like exploring all sorts of new kinds of methodological approaches and techniques to try to try to get at uh, the this this history um, because the because in those areas the sources aren't, aren't as good as we have on the on the on the, on the Christian world side, but but yeah so as far as why these so why you know why do we have all these Jews and, and Muslims living in these in these areas well well it's really it's as once as as one scholar likes to put it it's 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 purely pragmatism in many many ways right there i mean if we were just following the the tenets of catholicism to to the letter there would be a real you know real pressure for these people to convert but there's this this idea that um we can accommodate them and sort of maybe kind of encourage them to encourage them to convert very slowly but but then i mean there's not even necessarily that much encouraging going on in many contexts and and really these are just groups that are living and working uh, under christian rule and enriching whoever whoever happens to be uh exercise jurisdiction over them right and they're, and they're very it's very lucrative right because because there's this, this kind of legal principle that develops that the protection that the you know the overlord the christian overlord who who governs the land these people are living on the protection that they offer entitles them to be able to tax and essentially own the the property and people the person the you know the actual livelihoods of these of these non-christians who are living who are living uh on on their lands um in return you know that for this in return for the 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 payments that are being made, the tribute and you know different kinds of taxes that are being paid, these Jews and Muslims get all sorts of entitlements, right? They they in the surrender treaties and other kinds of other kinds of constitutional documents that, that define their existence as a as a as a kind of settled group within Christian ruled society, they get free religious practice they get free movement freedom of movement they you know if you look at it from uh from a certain standpoint it, these seem to be kind of very very tolerant uh, attitudes right i mean they're they're not forcing them to convert they're not they're not killing them they're 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 allowing them to move and trade and visit relatives and and and, and everything and re- you know really it's kind of the the carrot versus the stick. They're they're trying to incentivize them to to live here and to continue to maintain the local economy, right? Because you can, I mean, you can kind of see why this the, this is the whole like pragmatic idea. You can see why why conquerors want to do this. I mean, if you're if you're James the first and you're coming in and you're trying to conquer this vast territory of uh, Valencia, and you have a fully functioning agricultural 
communities, you know, very complex irrigation systems that you need to operate if you want to have any yields coming out of the land. You have, you know, all sorts of trading and uh, operations and so forth. Why would you want to destroy those those societies uh, and have to rebuild, right? And so there's this this effort to to accommodate these people and to entice them to stay. And I mean, and they to the extent to which this is borrowed from the Arabs when they when they conquered, because it, you know, a very similar kind of attitude was advanced by the by the Arabs as they as they conquered you know the 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 kind of southern Mediterranean um, into the in the Iberian Peninsula in the seventh and eighth centuries. Uh, this idea that if you don't resist, then we will accommodate you and give you all these entitlements. But if you but if you fight back as we try to conquer then then you know we'll either kill you or you'll you'll be forced to leave right we're, we're not going to accommodate you and so and so there is a sort of this kind of pragmatism that helps shape this these pluralistic societies and there's like you know a huge financial incentive on the part of the the rulers to accommodate these people because because of i mean they're Lot, lots of Muslims and Jews and and they and they have you know they have money and income that can be taxed you know so you're not just maintaining the economy you're also getting entitlement to to a large share of of their of the money that they can generate that's a, a really important part of of the history of these of these societies one of the things that I've been interested in in my work is is looking at how this idea that of ownership of non-Christians was interpreted by by different potentates within, you know, within Christian society. So there's this idea that advances in the 12th century that the that the the kind of putative sovereigns, right, the the, the kings or count kings or whatever you want to call them, that they own the the Jews and Muslims, right? That it's it's a it's a royal prerogative that belongs to them. But what I, what you see when you look into the sources, and this is what my first my first book, Contested Treasure, is about, is is you see the this this counter narrative, right? This kind of this this discourse that's coming from all sorts of other kinds of of lords, uh, nobles. There's even city councils that are doing this. There's uh, there's ecclesiastical lords like monasteries and bishops, and you know all so, all sorts of different. Uh, authorities, you know, who have jurisdictional power, you know, they own certain territories, they, 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 they exercise systems of justice in certain areas, because these are very fragmented uh, landscapes, right? Um, these are, these are not, these are not like centralized monarchies that, that control every aspect, they, they aspire to control, to control all these systems, but, they, but they don't actually have that control, right? It's an aspirational thing. And so, and so, what you see is you see all of these different these different groups falling under different authorities' controls, and it's and this is fought over, right? So the king will come in and try to assert assert his dominance over a certain Jewish community or a certain Muslim community, and and the Lord will simply say, you know, I don't recognize your entitlement to to that. I, I don't agree with the legal principle you're advancing that, that that all Jews and Muslims fall under your direct control. And I'm just, you know, what are you going to do about it, basically? And so unless the king is willing to march troops in there and 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 arrest the noble, it, you know, this 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 it becomes kind of a legal a legal fiction. And so that it's a very interesting dynamic that's that's happening throughout the the you know all of the realms of the crown of Aragon, where you you know, you have different you know rival authorities that are 
either succeeding or not succeeding, depending on the different situation, in, in challenging this, this, this kind of overarching idea of royal supremacy of all non-Christians. And that in turn shapes, very much shapes the existences of these groups, right? Because Jews and Muslims try to exploit the, these rivalries to their benefit. Right. So sure. it's, they're not just passive. Right. They, they assert their agency in, in order to benefit from this rivalry. Right. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. I, mean, you know, I, I really try my work not to just see the, the Jews and Muslims as as like victims. Right. Like like a lot of like subaltern studies or, you know, you know, uh, examinations of of um, oppressed groups. You look you try to look for uh, what. um you know, what Jim Scott famously called the weapons of the weak, right? The, the sort of, um, you know, what, what are these people who look like they're powerless doing to empower themselves in, in, in more, in, you know, subtle ways? It's not always apparent. Sometimes you have to read the sources against the grain. Sometimes you have to kind of speculate, but you can, you can see them trying to secure some level of agency because there isn't this unified front of, like, you know, Christian supremacy, that they're facing. It's very fractured and fragmented and disorganized and, you know, complicated as a result of this really mixed history, really, you know, really convoluted kind of confusing history that um, uh, led to the acquisition of these lands. That, that makes sense. Um, I I have kind of a a follow-up question. I have have multiple questions, but, but my first follow-up question is just kind of maybe a little bit of, of clarification. I think often when we think about the, these people, these kind of the, the, the oppressed in, in general, I think often we think about it, especially in an Iberian context, in this idea, through this lens of persecution. I mean, I'm thinking of like R.I. Moore and kind of this idea of a persecuting society as well. But kind of listening to you talk, I, I think it sounds almost more as though, I, it almost sounds as though they're, they're enjoying this very privileged position. I mean, and almost more privileged than maybe some of the lower class or some of the kind of the local Christians who are working the land, for instance, would be. Um, so I was just wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about that. I mean, do you do you think they have this more kind of privileged position? Do they have a more privileged position? Or is there still kind of this ritualized kind of persecution that's taking place as well? Or kind of how does that, yeah, I, I guess kind of how does that fit in? I mean, and I think even this relationship with the crown, I often thought of the crown as kind of trying to protect them from this persecution. But here it looks like the crown's competing with other nobles as being the protectors because then they get the kind of tax revenue, these other pragmatic resources that they get from these populations. So I was wondering if you just talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of those like big questions that we're grappling with. I mean, it's one of the things that makes the, the field so exciting, I think, for me and others to, to study, uh, to engage in is because... Because there's this, there's this real this real difficulty in understanding kind of what is the mentality, because you on the one hand have this impulse to protect, but another on the other hand, and you know in the, in the same breath, you know you you have one source like from a king saying we need to shelter this community from the abuses that are being during Holy Week Christians are going to try to attack them again and we need to make sure the Jews are protected, but then in the in the same breath the king saying. We've heard reports that the, you know, the Jews are desecrating the Christian host and, you know, we need to investigate these and punish anyone who's responsible. Or we've heard reports that Jew, that uh, Muslim men are are uh, seducing and uh, either raping or, you know, or having having Christian women as their, their willing lovers. You know, and this is this is a, an abominable situation. And, you know, we need to hold these people accountable and you need even more vigilant. But then, like, you know, just a couple months earlier, he, the king finds out 
that you know one of these communities is trying to prosecute some Muslim men these same crimes, and and the king's completely on the side of the Muslims and is like saying, you know, this is terrible. Well, how can you do this? Like these these are innocent victims of of a very unfair, uh, com- you know, completely uh, partial legal process that you're. You know, and, and so you don't you don't know. I mean, is the king just saying that because he, he he doesn't feel like he's been kept in the loop and he's trying to protect his his claimed rights of authority over the Muslims, or is it is it because he he thinks that these are trumped up charges, right? And it's the same kind of problem. Like like the Jews on the one hand are supposed to be, have free religious practice that's been ingrained in their settlement uh, privileges, but then the king is authorizing. The friars to you know, force force Jews to listen to their sermons in their synagogues, right? And this is happening, you know, from the from the mid mid twelve hundreds onward, you know. And then, I mean, even this even go this the same kind of the same kind of tension is is apparent throughout throughout the medieval period, and even in the early modern period. You see, I mean, you see it with the with the Moriscos, right, where the the king is under pressure from the Pope and other leading fig, you know church leaders to to really force these these converted Muslims to adhere to their baptisms. And then you know, the, the Lords are just completely ignoring it and allowing the, the Muslims to continue to practice Islam. And so, I mean, there's, it's like, you know, is the King a friend to these people or is he, or is he an antagonist? Uh, and what are the, the local people? I mean, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's this tension, right? Cause on the one hand you see Muslims and Jews engaging in business and completely seem to be comfortable with, with the, having Muslims and Jews like you know Christians would be completely comfortable having Muslims and Jews as as their friends, and they go out fishing with them, and they partner in business with them, and right. But then, but then you see you know the the pogroms of 1391, and you know all these 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 local people uh, that that seem so comfortable living and collaborating with these with these uh, non Christian neighbors, you know, rising up with with the the kind of in the influx of this mob and and victimizing them so so but it's it's a re- it's a really difficult thing and um and the, you know the historians are struggling to explain you know how these attitudes can can coexist and you know within society uh, you know how does it make is it just irrational or i mean is there does there's a rational fear as like R.I. Moore would talk about does it kind of take hold of people because there's like this this sense of danger and sense of being vulnerable and sense of you know that these are kind of uh, enemies in the midst of your society that are polluting, you know, you, the, the Christian community, uh, or are these strategic, or is it just? I mean, what, one idea I have is that it's just kind of cognitive cognitive dissonance. Dissonance, you know, that they, they, you know, it's hard to manage these two these two goals. Like you look at the king, and he just seems he and his administrators just seem to be struggling to know how to on the one hand protect the christians from these perceived threats but on the other hand protect these muslims and jews that are that are uh, not only deserving of the i mean they're contractually deserving of of the the king's protection but also they you know, they're financially extremely valuable to the kings right and so you know if he if he allows them to be victimized they might i mean one fear he has with muslims in particular they're going to leave right these like he all the kings are always super worried that if the if the abuses continue against the muslims and, they, and the muslims you know they can just go across the border back to muslim ruled lands i mean they're 
they're going to experience persecution there because they've been living in Christian lands. They maybe they don't speak Arabic that well anymore. And, you know, maybe they've been kind of tainted by, by this, this contact with, with Christians in Christian world society. But, but, on but on the, you know, on the other hand, it might be better than, than being tormented, you know, uh, within, within these Christian, the uh, world communities. So, so the Kings are always voicing these concerns that, the Muslim uh, Muslims are going to going to leave, and they're going to have this this progressive depopulation of of these communities that the king relies on for you know taxation and and, and various uh, you know various forms of uh, revenue in these local economies, right? Which the king also draws revenue from. So this this actually is like one direction I'm heading with my research on this, looking at it using kind of psychological research, you know, on like kind of cognitive dissonance and um, also kind of research on on teams and kind of group identities and how you know how these christian groups would maybe view jewish behavior in certain contexts in a certain way or muslim behavior in a certain context in a certain way because of like their their sense of um, a mounting sense of kind of being on on a, the kind of christian being within the christian community kind of on a christian team so there's been also really interesting work by psycho by psychologists on um on kind of the functioning of, of teams and how this can lead to kind of discriminatory practices against people that you see as not being like not forming part of your of your kind of group identity. And so yeah, I mean I I'm experimenting with all sorts of different ways. Um, Brian Catlos, for instance, is I mean he's done some really interesting work with models, kind of saying his argument is that that some kind of interactions are safe because they're not they're not ritually complex. Like he's kind of using the Gertzian approach to this and sort of saying, you know, uh, sex and any sort of religious activities, these, these things are charged. But if you're going fishing together or you're just doing, doing kind of routine day-to-day things you, you would do in the community. And so that's, and that's, that's been one approach to trying to understand this, but it's, but it doesn't really help the problem with, with that model, and I'm str- I'm still struggling with it, is that it doesn't help us understand then why why the king so concerned, you know, on Monday about about the abuse that that the Muslims are receiving at, through these accusations of, about it, uh, sexual relations with Christian women, and then on Tuesday he's trying to crack down and, and prosecuting these same crimes. <laughs> Brian and others have experimented with like kind of ideas about discourse and kind of levels of discourse and whether, you know, whether you're speaking in one register or another, but um, almost, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of leaning towards the cognitive dissonance uh, idea, which just, is just really, really hard to manage these, these, these different objectives that, that are kind of uh, contradictory they're innately opposed to one another. And so, you know, how do you pursue those at the same time? I think, I, you know, I think that they would one day feel really passionately concerned about one objective and then they quickly shift into a, a different, uh, a different perspective and have and voice opposite concerns that, you know, shortly thereafter, right. It's, it's a very complex challenge to manage these, these, these different um, competing goals. Yeah, that that makes sense. I, I think this. I mean, it's it's obviously a complex situation. I was wondering if you could tell tell us just a little bit about kind of what what these societies would have looked like, or kind of what these communities would have looked like within society. I mean, for instance, just taking the Muslim community, for instance, are, would they 
look different? Would they dress differently? Would they sound different? Would they speak differently? Would they would they kind of if you're in kind of a town in, in Barcelona, Valencia, wherever it might be, would you know someone from that community just at at a look, at, at a glance? And also kind of what types of jobs or professions would they have within society? Would they have kind of specialized professions or would they be just like anyone else, just like in any any kind of Christian worker as well? The the annoying answer I'm going to give you is it very cliche. Uh, it, it depends, right? So every community is different, right? So in some places you have these communities are completely segregated and walled, but in other communities they're not. Um, they're sort of more dispersed. Uh, sometimes they're in the in the core urban kind of the, the urban core, uh, the center of the city. Other times they have extramural. They're not ghettos yet, but they're they're sort of you know heading in that direction. In some cases, the Jews or Muslims request request to be walled because they feel safer that way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like they're being put in. It's not like Nazi Germany, you know, where you're being forced to relocate. Uh, they they're actually they actually want to have some sort of fortification protecting them from from this increasingly kind of scary volatile situation um, with the Christian majority living around them. It's a very uh, fluid situation. I mean, I, one one example that comes to mind is you know in in, in Valencia they have a very a very uh, large Jewish quarter in the center of the city which is really annoying for a lot of the Christians, especially like the religious leaders there, because it, it gets in the, it kind of interferes with the, this idea that the, that the city is Christian. And, and when they have processions, the Jews are kind of there in the way of like the, you know, and, and so, and so there's kind of this, this campaign to kind of relocate the, the, the Jews somewhere else. But, but at the same time uh, you have this problem in the Jewish quarter and, and also in the Muslim quarter in Valencia, of Christians living in there, owning property and residing in these quarters, right? So, so it's it looks all neat and tidy when you like first glance. You say, oh, okay, look, they're se- they're they're segregated and and so forth. But but then you find out that the it's not really segregated at all. And the king is constantly writing and saying, you know, you, you got to get those those Christians out of there. But you know, again, like no one listens. And so you have this really complex situation where you have a you have a an area that's that's supposed to be closed off and exclusively belonging to one religious group but actually in practice it's become a total mess of you know it's and there's no clean separation right and so i mean in that way i i feel like it's it's very typical of like of any of any legal legal historical theme or topic you know you you have this kind of uh legal fiction of order and uh symmetry and everything but actually the actual reality is that no one's listening or they're disregarding aspects of these laws, right? Which is, I mean, that for legal historians, they always, they always look at that, right? Like when a law is repeated, it means no one's following it. Right. But, but if you don't, if you don't, if you're not versed in legal history, you say, Oh, look, this, they really care about this. They're repeating the law. Like must mean everyone's following it. And because they keep repeating it and it's, it's just sort of become like a formulaic thing, but that's probably not the most, the, the most likely situation that's actually happening so to add to add to this another aspect of your question one of the problems with segregation is that they there's very it's very clear that the jews and muslims blend in Hmm. right so there's this idea that 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 they look there's a kind of this fiction they look different so when you see them depicted in manuscripts or you know there's there's various images we have of like a muslim who's like living in Christian society, but 
he's usually made to look very different because there's this this effort to distinguish them iconographically. But we can very it's very easy to see in the in the legal texts and also in the administrative sources. You have different different sorts of markers to distinguish Jews and Muslims, and especially Muslims. It's especially an issue with Muslims because um, because there's this for some reason there's a stereotype that Muslim men are sexual predators who are hunting Christian women, and um, and so there's a lot of attention to imposing. There's so there's this, there's a Muslim haircut uh, called the garceta in the crowd of Aragon, which is like a bowl, a pudding bowl haircut, kind of kind of like the guy from Dumb and Dumber, you know, the Jim Carrey character. You know, it's it's like that looking thing or the uh, one of the three stooges the uh, mo i think uh, had had a, ha- a haircut like that so so that's that's one way they require muslims to um to have beards they have certain colors that muslims are supposed to wear i mean there's, there's all sorts of different regulations that come and go you know and the, and the jews as well like the, you know the jew like in parts of europe jews have to wear a hat and this cloak or you know, different kinds of sumptuary laws restricting jews from from wearing certain kinds of clothing because it's either like they don't want Jews to be showing off how how wealthy they are uh, uh, or they just want them to be distinguishable. So this suggests to historians that that they they can bl- blend in. I mean, it depends, right? But but there's a significant number of these members of these communities that can they can blend in, which is why there's so much of a of concern about enforcing these laws to distinguish them. But but these laws are routinely ignored. Right. And so and and this is one of the questions I'm researching right now is is like, wh- why are they ignored? Who who cares about these regulations? And, and when they do seem to care, what is triggering those concerns? Right. Is it it's not a constant. It's clear that there's certain times when certain Christian authorities get really up in arms about the Muslims or Jews not being distinguishable, not being segregated. But the, but it seems like these are exceptional times, and there's a lot. There seems to be a lot more uh, of the historical record where they don't care. Um, but again, this is hard because it, it it's an argument from silence. Because when they don't care, you don't have sources, right? But when you when they do care, you get all this information about oh, they're not they're they're not wearing the haircut that we're supposed to be wearing, and so forth. And so it it gets to be really difficult to know. It, what's what's normative, right? Because the source record is going to prioritize you know, people complaining about neglecting the, the the norms, right? But when when people aren't complaining, you, you don't have evidence, uh, and so and so that's a, a real difficulty we have. But but it but yeah. So and then, and then as far as what they do, uh, they're very very different communities, and this this actually is not that locally. I mean, there's an urban rural divide, right? They, so, so rural Muslims are doing different things than urban Muslims. Like that makes sense, right? So there's a, a very large Muslim peasantry in Southern Catalonia, Southern Aragon, and then throughout Valencia. But in the cities, you have a lot of artisans. But, you, mm-hmm. but, but, what, but what happens with the conquest in the vast majority of cases is that the, the Muslims that remain are not elite Muslims, right? So the, ma- the vast majority of the of the conquests the 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 ones that with the most to lose or the, the most prestige most wealth they they seem to have emigrated and the ones who stay 
are the lower, you know, kind of lower end of the social spectrum. And so you have much more of a kind of what do you maybe call like a blue collar Muslim population. Right. And, and but some, you know, but then under Christian rules, some of these Muslim families get very, very wealthy, right, through various means. There is this kind of social stratification which takes place. But if you look at the actual, you know, the years right after the conquest, uh, mo- you know, you don't you don't have such a great disparity of social status and, and wealth amongst the, the the Muslim communities that are remaining. The, the Jews are very different because uh, in the vast majority of cases, the Jews are relocating from somewhere else, right? And they're migrating there, right? And the Jews tend to be much more skilled, right? See, I mean, when you have a Jewish craftsperson or something, it's usually they're very, very skilled, right? They'd be like a silversmith or, you know, something um, where they're very highly paid and it's very, it's, it's, they're not like a grunt, Right, where and and you do have Muslims with those like you'll have master builders. I'm another thing I'm studying with my work is looking at Jewish, uh, Jewish and Muslim servants to, to these different cities and kind of what what kinds of jobs they're doing and so forth. Like the employees, like they're either contractual employees or salaried employees, and and the Muslims. I mean, there there's whole clan groups that are that are largely responsible for maintaining the bridges in certain cities and doing all sorts of road work and, but they're, these, these include people who are doing manual labor, but also includes people who Muslims who know like a lot about building. They're like, they're, they're like a master. They have a title of master, master mm-hmm. craftsman or whatever. And so, yeah, so things get more complicated and get more stratified as, as time goes, as time goes on, but the communities remain very different. Jews also, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, money lending going on for a time but this is the, the big topic of debate of course because there's this this whole trope of like the jewish money lender and kind of the the that is not also not a, a a scenario a situation that is static right so jews will lend money a lot in certain periods and then in other periods there it becomes less important but uh, one thing that happens in the crown of aragon is you have these new forms of borrowing called Kensals uh, or um, Violari, which which emerge in the 14th century. And it basically makes Jewish lending a lot less important. And so the Jews become less prominent in lending. And, and a lot of Jewish families shift to other other ways to make money, uh, like real estate and um, and other, you know, other kinds of uh, pursuits that, that they had been doing before anyway. Right. A lot of historians will ignore this and just just say they're only doing money lending or the, or the Jews are the only ones who are lending money, which is not true at all. There's just tons of Christian money lenders as well. But, but Muslims are, you know, they're not really engaged. There's not a huge engagement on the part of the Muslim community in, in like money lending, for instance. It's just for, for whatever reason that doesn't emerge as a, as a kind of a focal point of their the kind of employment kind of occupations they're pursuing. I'm, I, was, I was actually going to change gears a little bit, though, um, just because I know you've also done quite a bit of recent research on some of these royal processions. Um, so I was just wondering if you wanted to maybe talk a little bit about kind of what these were and then also kind of why you're interested in these. What can these tell us about this relationship between the cities and then also the center of the crown and also some of these relationships between different members of society as well? Yeah, so I got interested in royal processions I've always been interested in them, but but I I have a really close friendship and kind of mentorship relationship with uh, 
with Te- Teofilo Ruiz, uh, who's who you know used to be the head medievalist at UCLA, and now you know now he's emeritus. But but he wrote this really this really well known book, kind of an instant classic called The King Travels, which is about pageantry in the late Middle Ages and early modern period. And so when I started this new line of research, where I was I was looking a lot more at late medieval municipal records and particularly i've really enjoyed working with these treasury records which so treasury you think of a treasury record a a kind of treasury register for like a municipality like a local government as being really boring dry you know that you know terse set of records but actually what's amazing is this this continues to this day there's this impulse to justify a requirement to justify every expense um so even today when i have like a spanish friends uh colleagues you know come over to the states to, to give a lecture or something they need to have everything you know spelled out exactly what they've spent and why they've spent it and you know it's a it's this bureaucratic uh tradition which which goes all the way back to the middle ages that that continues to complicate the lives of academics or you know anyone who has an expense account i guess uh in Spain and you know, probably other, you know, other inheritors, like I'm sure it's probably it's from what I've observed with Portuguese uh, administrative culture, it's there as well. So these records are fascinating because they they give you insights into things that uh, you wouldn't normally know. Uh, So so Teo, when he's writing this this book, he relied a lot on these narratives like narrative chronicles and so forth about what happened when a king entered this city and like all the different things that that were used to entertain you know you honor him in the in the entourage and you know the mock battles they did and you know christians dressed as muslims reenacting conquest of the city and all these things and but most of those narratives are later and and then they're also told they're told from one perspective right so it's it's sort of the perspective of the elites the the king it doesn't tell the whole story the story that I got interested in telling from that I, I was able to reconstruct from these records and other other kinds of municipal documents that usually get ignored by by historians. I mean, there's been much more of an interest in royal records than in municipal records uh, until very recently because they're easier to access. And I mean, it's just a whole bunch of reasons that have have a lot to do with with just logistics or maybe you know maybe there's this thing the world records are more important because they're they're not localized but it, at any rate these these records tell us all sorts of things about you know how much these these perceptions cost and and how much it was born uh with, with was was uh, the burden of the city and this whole back and forth between the monarchs who would or would not be visiting and, and people were trying to plan these things, and and I got really, you know, I got really interested in in that, you know, wh- why, you know, why was the city interested in in doing these things, and what were the stakes, and you know, were they tr- were they going full all out, or or are they trying to save money, and and, and what difference does it make who's visiting? So so one thing I got really interested in with this this article I wrote recently, and I I'm not really sure where I'm going to go with the, this line of research, but it, I mean, it continues to interest me. There's a lot more evidence that I haven't had a chance to really fully process yet is, you know, um, if a queen is visiting and it's the first time she's come into the city and, and you know, where, you know, who is she and what family is she from? And, you know, cause she's marrying into the Royal family and how does that influence, 
the the dynamics of the of this procession making and what is her response because you also so you have letters that the, you know some of these these queens these new queens will write about and they reflect on some of the annoyances that they're experiencing or you know whatever and then, and, and then if you integrate those with with the the municipal treasury documents which are saying every day what's happening what they're spending it's i mean it's almost like a little mini chronicle of all mm-hmm. the the expenses that are being being uh, covered by the city, and, and so you can kind of reconstruct like every day what's happening. But then you have the letters that are being written, and you know, and then you have letters that are written by, written by the municipality, and you have council meetings, and they're talking about you know this or that, like borrowing they have to do, or you know, and then you find out there's a play going through the town at that time, and so what, like, how is that influencing what they're doing, and and so it becomes sort of this whole kind of social world surrounding this this event that um that you know in other scholarship you, you just have the narrative right so so if the guy's writing the narrative he maybe he doesn't know there's a play going through t- or he ignores it or he doesn't want to talk about it because it would tarnish the procession like he wants to present everything as if it's just pristine and everything's orderly and it goes so well but like what what about what if it doesn't go well Right. And so and so we yeah, we see that in the in the Treasury records. Sometimes like there's problems that emerge, you know, things are broken or the boats, they can't get the boats uh, they need to take the entourage to this other place. That's part of the whole itinerary to show off the zone in its full glory. One, one thing I'm interested in as well is like the, the whole the legacy of these things. So the city will incur cities will incur huge debts to honor one of these visiting members of the royal family or whatever for you know for decades we'll be paying off the loans they, they undertook they, they took on to to pay for these things right and so and so you know, what does that do if, if if you are someone who knows about these debts and you, you have this big party but then you know what what was the benefit of that like did did did, it, did the invest did you get a return on your investment or not and and how maybe that would, would that color your views of the monarchy if if you're saddled with this debt because they came and visited you and then and then you never got these privileges you were hoping for or this favor that you're hoping for or maybe they got divorced right and then you're like oh we honor this queen and then she's not even queen anymore and we're, we're still paying the debt <laughs> you know that's annoying and so there's just there's so many really cool aspects of this that emerge from these from these sources. And so in this article, I just kind of explored some of them. Just happened to be this period in the 1380s where you're having plagues and famine and you know, war and you know, all these all these problems are happening. But then you have these, you're having different processions that different royal entries into the city throughout this this very troubled period. And so you're kind of wondering, you know, if you're starving or you, you know, you just lost members. To, to the family members to the plague and then you have this really wealthy magnet you know this 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 vip coming into town i mean how eager are you and and then they force you to stop working so let's say you're like a fisherman or like someone who you work in the dockyards or you're a merchant or something and you're not allowed to have do any business for three days because they don't want to have they want to have everyone just there not being distracted and no noise right and so, I mean, that's hurting, hurting the local economy. It's also hurting the livelihoods of these local people. And, you know, and so it's sort of, again, it's like this, my attraction to the, the sort of a, the press or the, you know, the people who are forgotten, the voiceless. You don't, you don't get their voice per se, 
because there's still re- records that are being written by you know elites or reflecting expenditures done by the municipality but but it gives us a, at least a little bit of more information than we normally have about about the how the existences of these of these people that usually forgotten uh you know might have been influenced by these by these larger events you know that we usually only have told to us from this higher level perspective that's not interested in what these people you know their experiences are right they just see them in the crowd all that matters is the crowd is there right <laughs> you know <laughs> so i find i've been finding that very interesting to explore that yeah definitely i i was i mean i was struck by a lot of the stories that you were able to kind of pull out and tell I mean, the, the example of the city, I mean, you do a lot of work with the archives from Tortosa, the example of them lending money to the Marquis, and then the Marquis is, is executed, and then that money is just lost, right? I, I thought that was really, really <laughs> yeah. well, can't get that back. Yeah. That's gone. So this, this is where the kind of early part of my career is helping the later part of my career, because because a lot of people will just see this this whole Marquisate thing, and they're like, oh, that's interesting. Like, they carved out Tortosa as like a this entity. But if you actually look back at the conquest history of conquest, you can see that that one of the strategies of the of the count he's called the count prince is Ramon Berenguer the fourth. When he he's the one who oversaw the conquest of Tortosa, he had established Tortosa and this and this other Muslim uh, city that they were trying to conquer at the same time, Lerida or Lleida, which is another city I do a lot of research on. Frontier zones, which which the word in Latin becomes. Marquisate. So the Marquis, it's used by this king in the in the 1300s to deal with this inheritance dispute. So basically, this guy becomes becomes lord of Tortosa as like an independent entity, like totally carved out of Catalonia for like a few decades, which leads to this debt that the that the city in, later in, incurs after after he's executed as a traitor, and then and then Catalonia then Catalonia reabsorbs Tortosa back into it again. But this, the whole rationale for that is based on this earlier uh, strategy by the Count Prince to kind of establish Tortosa and neighboring Ye- Lerida at Lleida as c- conquered areas that would be under his direct control. Right? He's Because he's trying to kind of prevent this jurisdictional fragmentation that's been such a problem elsewhere in his domains. Right, So it shows you how... you know. The strategies don't just go away. People continue to remember these things, and then it can serve as a as a source of um, it can, a new strategy. You kind of re uh, breathe new life into this this old concept, which you know, takes a new a new uh, degree of importance uh, later on, like centuries later. And so one of the one of the things like that, that they agree on once they reabsorb Tortosa into Catalonia again is that it can never be separated again. But what but when they agree to that, the city ag- agrees and signs this contract with the king, they get all of these new privileges. So the king gives them all sorts of new jurisdictional entitlements. And that, in turn, really complicates the, the, the situation when the king is trying to force the, the city to do certain things. Because the, the city will say, well, no, but, but you gave us these privileges and we don't have to do that. And so it just shows you how how this this effort to centralize is it's not like a history of progress like there's lots of setbacks and you know one you know uh, a gain in one area will lead to a loss in another area and and it's it's not just like this clean path to this regimented centralized society right it's it's a very 
difficult endeavor that the kings are trying to orchestrate to um to just be in control of everything right this idea of like absolutist kind of supremacy sovereignty or whatever is is uh it's so elusive uh you can't you, you can't see that as as well in castilian sources and portuguese sources like because so much has been lost right in portugal i mean the flood the flood the the tsunami fire and tidal wave and everything they had uh destroyed in lisbon destroyed you know the vast majority of their medieval uh administrative records in castile like i said i, I, I like i i was mentioning earlier they they systematically destroyed those but in crown of aragon they they kept them so we can we really can see this the struggle to centralize much much more clearly and so that's a lot of my work has really been just ex- trying to tell this story all the nuances all the exceptions all the you know you can have the this law or that law or this statement this this kind of promulgation that this is how it is but when you actually look at the local reality you see how different it was from what the king might have wanted right and yeah, and not to say nothing about also like corruption, just royal officials. Like a lot of royal officials themselves are asserting themselves to the, at the king's expense, and yeah, and so the the whole thing becomes like a, a it's just a lesson in 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 how in how difficult it is to assert control over any uh, political environment uh, in 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 pre modern times. I think you know when you have to delegate and when you yeah. you don't have you know you don't have the benefits of you know, very uh, ingrained administrative techniques or, you know, modern technology, think, you know, things like this make it, make it harder to combat corruption. Yes. Yeah, so the Marcos said, is just one little example of, <laughs> of how these, there's these legacies that, that continue on and people don't forget this history. They selectively will appropriate things like, just like we do today, right. With polit- political campaigns and, uh, you know, other kinds of things people do, they always are trying to use, use history to their advantage if they can remembering selectively certain things and well i i think you definitely do a great job like teasing out some of these little these little stories and kind of teasing out some of these examples these kind of individual cases that help to kind of complicate our our image of what this this history was like and what was happening on the ground so i think that's that's great um thanks yeah i enjoyed i enjoyed doing the work i i i hope i can find the time to continue uh, continue it because it's it does take a long time, right? I mean, the, the the real challenge is you're sifting through, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of records and, try, you know, a lot of it is not interesting, you know, or it doesn't fit the theme you're trying to research. So, I mean, any archival historian knows that, but, but for me, it's been really hard because I, you know, I used to work, I still had a lot of evidence, but, but, you know, for any given year, it might be a handful of charters and you have to try to figure out what those mean and you have to relate those to other charters elsewhere and other archives might have duplicates because they change words in it or something. But now it's just the volume, you know, just from one city or another, you know, two cities that I'm comparing, comparing the situations between cities or whatever. It's, it's just so much, so much work uh, that goes into creating one of these arguments and these arguments and, and you don't have anyone, there's no historiography on what you're seeing. So a lot of times, I mean, there's no one to turn to, you, you're trying to piece together what's happening, but I mean, this history has never been written before. So it's not, it's, it, you don't have anyone to help you with when you're struggling to interpret what's going on. Right. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I, just to give one example from that same, from, I, from looking at those troubling years in the 1380s, I saw all these 
the city paying for all these winding sheets. And I was like trying to understand what the heck's going on. Like, is like why are all these wine like winding sheets? And and I was just I was just scouring all the articles and books I could like think of to try to find out what was going on. And no one, I just didn't didn't ever come up in anything. And so I finally figured out that the city was was basically these are indigent people who had died of the plague. They were providing this as sort of a service um, to give them a proper burial. And you also see them paying for um, the fabrication of, of sick beds and hi- hiring more doctors. And, and there's, there was all sorts of other indications that these had to do with burying people, you know, or nursing, you know, uh, giving people a, a good, as good a death as they could. And, and, and then you do also see, I and mean, there's, there's a whole history of like charity, I think that really interesting to write, but basically that there's a, every, in every register for the treasurer, uh, there's there's a there's a whole section on charitable donations and you could see you know what they're where the charity is being directed and, and it'll tell you exactly like what was going on in these families lives or this person or this orphan or whatever and so and so you could see that this is an, a facet of that kind of charitable impulse which runs counter to our we always think of like the middle ages as being like the wild west and there was no safety net or anything and you know we feel like oh things are so much better now in modern society because we're so much more civilized but but actually if you look at these records you can you can see that there there was a a, a lot of support of the poor and there was an attempt to take care of the populace and you know it, it it kind of defies that stereotype when you when you actually look at the at these records but again like this is something that isn't recorded in a lot of a lot of cases so so it, it's only this really extraordinary survival in in tortosa and a, you know a handful of other cities in the kind of aragon where you you have this information but it you know throughout a lot of pre-modern europe you, you just don't have that so you don't really know what's going on as far as um the, the charitable operations of the city government yeah i'm i'm convinced i'm ready to to give up on castile move to tarragona <laughs> some, some small town in catalonia and just uh <laughs> just get into it um no it, it sounds it sounds really fantastic i think you're it, it was it was a pleasure reading through your work and i think i just I, I love the way you're kind of pulling out these large narratives from these these very specific cases and these kind of as you say thousands of pages of just of just data we're we're running out of time um but i, I guess kind of as the last question just kind of building off this a little bit do you just kind of thinking forward moving forward where you see kind of the the field going do you do you see these records maybe being digitalized? Is this something that's happening? Is this taking place? Or do you think folks still have to go into the archives, kind of still do it kind of the way scholars have been doing it for for decades, if not centuries? Um, or do you see things changing now? It really has changed quite a bit. A ton of the rural archives have gone digital, and but that, I mean, there's still a lot that's, that isn't, and there's there's, there's holes. Like, I I don't really understand the strategy. Because I'll skip over certain monarchs, and I mean, it's just I I don't really understand how how they're doing it. Um, but there's this really important portal, not just not just for the middle medieval period, but for for all of Spanish history, called Pares P P A R E S, and and it's it's this portal that gives you access to um, all the they have a registry of all the documents, and then and they have they have all the digital the digital images they made are available but they're at a lower quality so sometimes you can't read them as well 
um, than if you went to the archive. But but they do it. They do have them. And so I mean, and and I did. I recently attended a presentation by Christina Lee, who's at Princeton and works on. She's working. She's an early modernist, but she's working increasingly on the Spanish Pacific. And so I mean, the the Paris is also very very important for those records, right? So when you move in, when you move into the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, um, that, that, you know, they also have those as well. So it's, it's changing everyone's reality when it comes to doing these kinds of projects for certain kinds of sources. But when it comes to municipal sources, I mean, there just isn't the revenue, they don't have the resources to, to digitize these systematically. I mean, I haven't seen any signs that they're, that they're doing, um, doing what they've done at the state at the at the, at the upper level like royal archives or i mean just there's too much there's too much documentation and they're understaffed I, it remains to be seen that there's no machine that i know of that can just digitize these things uh, you always have to have someone who's who's doing it and it's very very expensive um also there's there's a problem of of restoration so so some volumes in different archives you know manuscripts or parchments or you know paper records uh, loose leaf paper records are are damaged, you know, and you can't really be photographed. So, but also in some cases they won't let you consult them either. But maybe if you make friends with archivists, you know, maybe he'll let you look at it. And so, and so there's those things, those challenges as well if you're trying to do it remotely. But also, I mean, yeah, you just, I mean, kind of need to go there to in order to figure out what's not digitized because if it's not in if it's not in the catalog that's online and it's not digitized like you wouldn't know what you're missing out on so but but it, it has changed quite a bit i remember when i went to uh, the archive of the crown of aragon in barcelona back in the early 2000s there were like tons of doctoral students there and now when you go in there's just a couple, few old men you know who are doing <laughs> genealogical research and like it's pretty vacant uh and then there's this whole question of ecclesiastical archives you know like monastic archives and um the ones that aren't weren't absorbed into like the um the National Archive of Madrid or you know National Historical Archive in Madrid or or into the one the Archive of Crown of Aragon in Barcelona, though there's still a lot of uh, you know pistol uh, record uh, archives that are just privately owned and there's also no noble archives so there's this huge noble archive um, in uh, Toledo for all of Spain and they're always they're getting tons and tons of new records all the time. But there's still a lot of noble records that are just private and you have to go and like ask for permission from the noble family to you know, whoever owns them to consult them. So but then but then that noble archive, I was talking to the the head archivist of that archive last year, and he said that they there's so many millions and millions of records that I mean if they were gonna digitize them, they're trying to do it. But if it would probably take them a couple of centuries at the rate they're going to digitize everything. Yeah, so it's it's um it's a mixed picture. I think there are going to be a lot more people who are doing remote projects just because there's no funding available or they don't have the time or something. Uh, I think it's doable. You can you can pick a very you can de delimit your project in a way that you wouldn't need to go to the archive. But I think that uh, you know if it's if it's a more open ended if you're if you're trying to do if you're kind of trying to trace a theme or or do a really comprehensive job on a topic it's going to require, you know, travel and, and some, some of the things that I, I, my colleagues who are my same age or older than me, we're, we're doing, you know, 20 years, years ago or so, which I'm, I'm happy about because I, I think it's, it's really great to go there and see the place and meet the local scholars 
and interact and have to learn the languages. And I, you know, I would really sad if, if that was lost, but, but at the same time, it's nice when I have to check something and I can just rely on either a photo I took or can ask the archivist to send a photo or I can check it online. I mean, these are things that I have a lot of respect for my teachers and their teachers, those gener that their older generation of scholars who didn't have any of those tools. They didn't even have laptops, right? <laughs> and they had to put all together all these things. I mean, it really is an, a remarkable achievement. I, I always say to my, my, my colleagues that if, if I had been born a few decades earlier, I, I think I probably wouldn't be able to do this line of work because I'm just not organized enough. And I, I need, I need the tools that we have thanks to the, the information age <laughs> to do my research. You know, it's really been essential for me just that I can't read quickly enough in the archives and I can't, it's just it, the, the kind of work I'm doing. You just, I would have to spend months and months and months and months there. And I just don't, I can't do that with my family situation and so forth. So, so I'm grateful to be, been, be the vintage that I am as far as, you know, you know the access to technology that it's, it's given me. But I do think something is, is going to, something's been lost, you know, when you go to these archives and you just see like no one's there and there's yeah. definitely no foreigners, but there's also not even any Spanish students in the archives because they're all doing it from their apartments, <laughs> you know, and they're not even going there. And it's sad. I think it's like, we've lost something. Cause I, I've met so many neat people in the coffee room at the archive of the crown of Aragon. I mean, just, I still know these people. I still see them around and you know, that that's, that's a important part of joining a international community of scholars, just having a coffee with someone as you rest your eyes after looking <laughs> through sources for hours and hours. <laughs> so we'll I, see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yes. I, I, I think that's right. And I think that's also a nice, a nice place for us to end on um, as well. So, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Brad. And I, I really uh, enjoyed the conversation. And uh, again, I, I'm grateful for the invitation to join the long, illustrious list of guests on your podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and, and speaking with us. I think, I think it was great. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, that's it for today. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.